Hey there, friends. It's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And this is Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we take your favorite animals and rate them out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. Neither of us are zoological experts, but we try our best to find the most correct information. Only the correctest. (laughs) That's right. Only Um, minimally made up. I refrain from making things up. I don't know about you. I might sprinkle in a thing here. (laughs) (laughs) Are we playing two truths and a lie? Uh, We didn't know that we were playing this whole time. Before we launch into this week's animals, I want to talk about the last animal we talked about together. Okay. Which was the turkey, the wild turkey. Mm -hmm. I got a couple of very very charming responses from folks who listened and had their own contributions to offer about the turkey. Mm. So I wanted to share those with y'all. First up is a message that I received from Forrest Hunt. Thank you, Forrest. And they said, hi, I'm Ojibwe, and I just wanted to give you a few notes or fun facts that you missed in your wild turkey episode. They also said they love our podcast. I'm just Yay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Forrest says, So turkeys lived in the villages with woodland native tribes, and as you said, they were kept for their feathers. They were sometimes eaten, though, mostly during very bad famines. So they were also considered the easiest animal to kill because they were so trusting. So you could just take them right out, I suppose. (laughs) Top 10 saddest anime deaths. (laughs) Top 10 anime betrayals. Nothing personnel, Tom. Uh, They go on to say, uh, little kids would often shoot turkeys as their first kill, which is a rite of passage in a lot of tribes. Mm. Uh, Old and sick people were also able to shoot and eat turkeys if they really, really needed to eat. Also, their feathers are very important, but are mostly used ceremonially, especially their striped wing feathers. Mm. They're used in fans for sage and medicine smoke, and the feathers decorate traditional regalia. The turkey was so sacred because it fed us when we were hungry and gave us sacred feathers. Many tribes even had a turkey clan. Oh. Yeah. I was really glad to hear that. I really definitely re- like identify with the turkey and, and it resonates a lot with me. So I was really happy to hear about how, you know, other people identify with it and it plays into their, their culture and history. Very cool. I love that. I also got a message from Sam Dunlap who sent in an email. And they said, I grew up in Spokane, Washington. We had a few huge flocks of turkeys living in the parks around town. One such flock lived near our house, and they often made the great journey across the busy street in order to go foraging in yards and gardens. They seemed to know that cars were big, dangerous animals. So when the flock needed to cross, the toms would split up into two groups. Mm-hmm. And they would stand on either side of the road, glaring at traffic <laughs> while the rest of the flock crossed. And they also seemed to know exactly the worst times to cross. My high school was at one end of that busy road while the athletic fields were a few miles up the road. So it got very busy right after school got out as kids headed to practice. This always seemed to be the turkey's lunchtime. I remember traffic jams eight or nine blocks long waiting for them to cross the street. This is very similar to how our geese behave This is ex- I have been late to multiple <laughs> things because you drive right up to these geese and they just stand in the middle of the road and they look at you. They're like, what are you going to do? They, they know they're federally protected. They know. They're like, I'm sorry, is somebody not on the Migratory Bird Act <laughs> trying to start something with me? Interesting. I'm going to skip ahead to the end of Sam's email just for the sake of time. Uh, They said, we saw turkeys all the time so often that they felt like part of the community, and they were, in a way. My mom kept a big vegetable garden for many years, and she told me she never had any bug problems the whole time she lived in Spokane. It wasn't until she moved away and started dealing with insects that she realized the turkeys were coming by probably every morning to rifle through the plants and pick all the bugs off. As aggressive as the toms were sometimes, our turkey friends were always happy to help keep the vegetables growing. That's nice. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's a good reminder that even though sometimes your relationship with the wildlife around you might be a little complicated, uh, <laughs> it all plays into something bigger, you know, that you might not necessarily appreciate until it's gone. Yeah. So I really enjoyed hearing people's thoughts and feelings about turkeys. And I really appreciate people who got a hold of us and, mm-hmm. and contributed to that. So thank you. That was really fun. Yeah. 
this time it is your turn to go first. All right. And we do have a theme this week, by the way. We do. I've forgotten it, though. (laughs) (laughs) Trees? It was trees related. Yes. Like the Christmas tree practice, I suppose. Because your animal cuts down trees and drags them around like we do with our Christmas trees. Yeah. So that being said, my animal for this week is the American beaver. Scientific name, Castor canadensis. This species was submitted by Evie Harmon via our website submission. Yeah, email form, yeah. Yes. Thank you, Evie. Thanks, Evie. Or Evie, if that's how you pronounce your name. True. The information sources I'm using are Animal Diversity Web, the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, and the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. That's quite a range. It is. Because you said Washington uh-huh. and then Florida, which are, for people <laughs> unfamiliar with American geography, those are opposite corners of the continent. Yes, of the lower 48 states. We love to see range. We love variety. Right. So just a quick description of a beaver, just in case you're not familiar. A beaver is a four-legged rodent. It has brown fur. It has a flat scaly tail i believe that is called hamburger style yes what's, what's the opposite of lateral <laughs> dorsally dorsally flat there it is thank you so squished along the vertical axis yes <laughs> and it has large teeth but just the front two the big buck teeth in the, the front, front right? four. Oh, sure 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 but yeah incisors so size wise they weigh between 13 and 32 kilograms which is 29 to 70 pounds and are 900 to 1170 millimeters long, which is 35 to 46 inches. 70 pounds seems real hefty for a rodent. That's like a big dog. Yeah. Uh, So natively, they're found in all of North America, except for the more northern portions of Canada and the deserts of the USA and Mexico. No deserts. Right. I suppose that makes sense. What are they going <laughs> to chomp on out there? A cactus? At least no. not anymore. I read something that maybe historically they, they had better range into the desert regions. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> but then what uh, rivers are they going to dam up? Well, there's big Nothing rivers that go through um, through the deserts out in the west. That's too big. <laughs> Those are too big. <laughs> you keep your sights high. That's true. I was curious about this. This statement. So this would imply you would find them in Florida. Right. Yes. I have never seen a beaver in Florida. Me neither. Ever. Never seen one. I've lived in Florida for 28 years. Yeah. I've never seen one here either. So in Florida, they're only found in the panhandle today, mostly. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've saw some scant sightings, other like further south, but normally mostly found in the panhandle. But also, I feel like people could probably confuse like nutria for a beaver easily. They could. Now, a question I had about this is why aren't they found further south? Because you would think, like, the Everglades would be prime real estate for a beaver. Oh, they would love that. You've seen how many trees there are down there? <laughs> so many. Well, the Everglades don't have, you know, big, tall, carnivorous trees, right? Sure. But plenty of other vegetation and that kind of thing for them to work with if they wanted to. But they're not there. Mm-hmm. And from what I could see, they weren't there historically either. Sure, just don't bother with it. Yeah. It's not their not their scene at all. So this is the this was the question I was talking to you about. Oh. Is why. Oh yeah. Why 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 no <laughs> why not beavers? Why not here? I've, What's I've, wrong with us? I saw a lot of speculation, but nothing really definitive. Hmm. So, you know, some people say, Oh, it's because of the alligators. But they're found in other parts of the country that also have alligators. True. Yeah. Yeah. Alligators aren't special to yeah. Florida. We just have so we just have a ton of them. Right. So I don't know. Maybe it's the maybe it's the gator density <laughs> of Florida. There's just too many of them. And it's not necessarily you know latitude because they're found in parts of Mexico that are at similar similar latitudes. So it's not the heat. Yeah. It's probably not the gators. It might be a bacteria. I have no idea. Oh, like maybe there's something in the environment that they mm-hmm. can't handle. Not sure. Huh. That is interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting thought. If you're listening and you know, please let us know. Yeah, for sure. We want to know why we're missing out on all the fun. <laughs> now, I mentioned where they're found natively. They have been introduced to parts of South America and Europe. Oh, really? Yes. Don't they have their own? They do. <laughs> so, What do you need ours for? Great segue. They belong to the taxonomic family Castoridae, which are the beavers. Uh, a once diverse family, but now there are only a single extant genus oh. today. And then within that genus, uh, there's two species. It's this one and the Eurasian beaver. So getting right into our categories. 
Our first one is effectiveness. This one describes physical attributes, the things they have that let them do the things they should do. For the beaver, I'm giving a 9 out of 10. That's very good. It is. It's a good, good boy. They're well suited for what they're doing. So first off, they're large. So big. They are the largest rodents in North America. And at the world stage, they're second only to the capybara. Mm, Two very good friends. (laughs) But to be clear, that gap between the beaver and capybara is significant. Yeah, that's true. Capybaras are very... If you've never been around a capybara, they're huge. The upper weight range of a capybara is double that of a beaver's. Okay. That is a comfortable lead for the capybara. Yes, for sure. (laughs) They have big teeth, like we mentioned. So they are 20 to 25 millimeters long, which is around an inch. For example, human front teeth are half that length. And for a much larger creature. True. (laughs) So proportionally long. Uh, Those teeth help them chew through trees and other vegetation. Kind of what they're known for. So uh, for anybody who has ever uh, kept a rodent, Mm -hmm. a pet rodent, as I have, I've kept rats, uh, you may know that their teeth grow forever. Their <laughs> teeth never stop growing. Right. Ever. Intentionally, because they do a lot of chewing. Yes. To get through tough substrate or to do, you know, whatever is they're, they're trying to do. So, like, if you have a pet rodent, like if you have a pet rat um, or a pet guinea pig or something like that, you actually need to provide them with abrasive surfaces to chew on. Mm. Um, so that's why at the pet store you'll see, like, chew toys for rodents because their teeth will literally grow indefinitely which i'm sure is extremely helpful for a beaver because that's kind of their that's their money maker right there right yeah for sure number one tool in the wild you know it's not like they have to purposely chew chew down things to to wear down their teeth because just as a matter of what they're doing every day is doing (laughs) that just fine so One of the reasons they chew on trees is because they eat bark and cambium, which is the softer part of the tree just under the bark. Oh, I didn't know there was a word for that. Yeah. Um, So they're very good at digesting cellulose. Oh, they're actually eating it? Yes, they're eating that. Oh, I thought they were just like, I don't know, crafting with it. I don't know. I thought it was like crafting (laughs) supplies. So, So they're eating the bark and cambium. And then sometimes, of course, they're chewing through the entire tree to use that tree for purposes right so both okay (laughs) but you know when we talk about having chewed a whole tree down you'll Mm -hmm. often find a pile of wood chips next to the stump in the felled tree right so they're not eating that entire thing letting it go to waste (laughs) (laughs) um so they're very good at digesting cellulose which is similar to lagomorphs and how Mm. it works with their cecum lagomorphs are uh rabbits and their relatives yes so we talked about that a little while ago yeah that is not a substance that a lot of animals can digest. Most mammals cannot digest cellulose. Right. So if you can, there's like very li- little competition for that food resource for <laughs> right. you, right? Like that is free real estate for you if you right. can eat it. And cellulose is found in plants and fibrous vegetation, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So the next thing I want to talk about are their tails. So they have yes. these big, flat tails. It's kind of one of the defining characteristics of a beaver. And I think one of the only other animals with anything like it is maybe the platypus. They don't have a tail like that. Isn't it flat, though? We've been over this. Okay, hold on. Hold on. <laughs> I thought it is flat. I'm looking at a picture right now. <laughs> it is flat, but it is often depicted to have the same material as a beaver tail, which is not. But it's not scaly. No, not scaly. But it often is depicted that way for whatever reason, right? I see. Which Okay, I see yeah. where you're going with this. Yeah. Yes. So that tail is very interesting. It has lots of different uses. So one is it acts as a rudder and propeller. Mm. So they use it for locomotion through the water. And I guess I haven't mentioned this yet. They are semi-aquatic animals. So they're like in and out of the water. Yes. Okay. So they do spend a good amount of time in the water, and that flat tail helps them propel themselves through the water, but they can also use it to steer by, mm. you know, altering its angle and such. Is the tail, like, bald, like a rat's tail? Yes. Interesting. Because there are other rodents that have tails like that, but not flattened in that way. Right. So, like, the texture isn't particularly unusual, but right. the shape of it is very, very strange. Well, and also there's a ton of surface area of that texture, right? Right. Because with, you know, rats and stuff, it's a relatively small surface area it of is. that texture, but with yeah. this, it's just like there. <laughs> it's a slab of it. <laughs> um, and they're very impressive swimmers. So even they can swim within 24 hours of being born. So they're born fully furred, open eyes, Ready can swim go. in 24 hours. So one thing that the tail is not used for and is often depicted in media is it is not used to plaster mud. 
<laughs> I've never heard this before in really? my life. This is a, a thing in cartoons. Okay. Know, <laughs> where you'll, they'll show a cartoon plastering mud onto a dam or their oh. lodge or that kind of thing. Oh, like they're using it to like pat the mud Yeah, on? yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I see where they were going with that. Sure. I could see that, but no. <laughs> right. Another thing the tail does, it counterbalances their body when they're carrying something and their paws and front legs. Oh. And while they do that, they use that counterbalance to walk on their hind legs. Oh my goodness. Like they're <laughs> carrying a little item. <laughs> That's very cute. Oh, I love it when an animal just gets up on two legs and is like carrying uh-huh. something like a little, like a little raccoon. Yep. Oh, it's so cute. The tail also stores body fat mm-hmm. and acts as a heat sink. <gasps> Love heat sink. <laughs> they can use it to help thermoregulate, right? I see. Because you mentioned that they do live far south. Sure. But so they, they're living in pretty toasty climates. Yeah. So yeah, they are generally very well adapted to underwater habitat. They, ha- they can close their ears and nostrils. They have a set of transparent eyelids that work like goggles. Basically. Oh, cool. Like a nictitating membrane. Something like that. Love that. And they can stay underwater for up to 15 minutes. Like that's only they can hold their breath? I read they can hold their breath and then they can also uh, slow down their uh, heart rate to maximize that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I never realized the extent to which they're spending time in the water. Mm-hmm. Like I knew they were like water adjacent. I didn't really realize that they spend that much time actually in the water. I'll talk more about what they're doing in the water in the ingenuity section. Please. <laughs> but they do also have a waterproof coat, like mm. some other aquatic semi-aquatic mammals like otters you know but for both beavers and otters that has worked against them in terms of their relationship to humans yes in the sense that humans very much desire this type of fur yeah they do stink really (laughs) they have an odd smell they have an odd smell yes really (laughs) i don't know it personally uh, lastly, they have poor eyesight, but they have good hearing and smell okay so you gotta make up for it where you can now, getting into ingenuity, these are the smart things they do, could be methodologies, tool use perhaps. So here, I'm giving an 8 out of 10 for ingenuity. It's pretty good. They are primarily nocturnal. Really? Yes. I had no clue. Yeah. They don't have any traits I would associate with being nocturnal. Mm. You know, like large eyes or... They have poor eyesight. I suppose that makes sense as kind of their dump stat, right? <laughs> They're like, well, I'm in the dark anyway. Who needs to see? That makes me wonder about how they're spotted sometimes. Because in the, the three or four iNaturalist sightings I have seen in our area, mm-hmm. they're, they're mostly pictures of what you would think they're leaving behind. So oh. like dams, lodges, trees that have been felled, that kind of thing. Mm, yeah, There's other stuff that can do that. Yeah. Like bored kids. <laughs> well, the... <laughs> A tree felled by a beaver is pretty unique. Oh, sure. But, it uh, does leave a pretty distinct pattern on the yeah. wood. Uh, and then you don't have to go that far into the panhandle to see more convincing evidence. Like even, Tallah- sure. even Tallahassee mm-hmm. has lots of beaver sightings. We should go see them. Yeah. Let's go, let's go drop them <laughs> a visit. They do live in lodges. So they build these houses out of you know sticks and mud and all that stuff. You say a lodge? Yes. As in like they construct their own like lodge and live in it because i'm imagining that cartoon two angry beavers right and they had like a whole little like a whole house yeah a whole construction that they lived inside not that exactly maybe not to that degree (laughs) think more of a wooden tent that whose opening goes into the water oh yeah okay so they build dams and lodges okay so those are different so the dams are built to slow the flow of water to then build stable lodges Okay. Yeah. So they're they see a body of water that's moving. They're like, this will not do. This <laughs> this has to stop. Too fast. <laughs> <laughs> we put an end to this now. And they dam it up just so that the water is not going to wash away their lodge. Right. Okay. And then also in some other cases I've seen where uh what they'll do is they'll build their lodge and then dam up the water such that when after they dam the river or whatever, the level of the river rises such that the entrance that was above water is now underwater. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is legit like engineering. This feels yes. like a puzzle in a video game. You know, like if you've ever played a video game where like an area is filled with water and you have to like make the water levels fall and rise so that you can access different areas at different yep. times. Mm-hmm. This is what this is. <laughs> so dams in slower water are straight. Whereas dams in faster water are curved. 
They do not build dams in bodies of water with constant level. So like ponds and lakes. They oh. don't build dams in those. because Why would not... you need to? Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Will they build a lodge there, though, if the sure. water's still? If they want, yeah. Okay. Sure. Well, then, what are you doing with the dams for? <laughs> what are you doing all this extra work for? I mean, you won't find <laughs> ponds near every single river system, right? I suppose. <laughs> now, this does, of course, affect the ecosystem, for better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I mean, this is a, a significant amount of terraforming that you're right. doing here. Uh, and the worst is more, mostly for yeah, human value. Uh, like, oh, my cow pasture is mm-hmm. now a pond. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, that's true. You could have a suddenly waterfront property. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do build canals between their lodge and food sources. Mm. So they'll you know go up on land, find a good food source, and they will build a canal from that body of water to that food source so that they can then float that food source back <gasps> to their lodge. No. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That is so clever. <laughs> right? That's so smart. You're smart what little guys. Those little guys. <laughs> Why didn't you give them a 10? <laughs> They're so smart. Uh, they will store logs and twigs underwater for winter feeding. Okay. Uh, in colder areas, you know, where bodies of water will freeze during the winter, they'll make the water deeper in that body of water such that, uh, you know, where their stuff is sitting at the bottom, is it's less likely for all, that entire water column to freeze. Oh, sure. Interesting. These are just little lumberjacks. <laughs> they're little lumberjack guys. Right. Uh, because, you know, if their food stash gets frozen, it's pretty much all for naught. <laughs> That's true. It's not going to do you a lot of good. Yeah. So like we mentioned, they do fell trees. Uh, the ones that they bite down are usually those of a diameter between one and six inches or 25 and 150 millimeters. Oh, so they're like picking ones that are already thin enough that they could like chop it down pretty easy. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because keep in mind, once they chop it down, they then need to transport it in some way. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're not going to be trying to lug a redwood log. Right. <laughs> it's still a rodent. <laughs> it's not that strong. I don't think they're moving whole trees anyway, even at that diameter. But mm. they're probably chopping it up into smaller pieces. So these activities they're doing, one benefit of it is that they preserve wetlands. So Make them very wet. <laughs> right. So these activities, it prevents erosion. And raises the water table, uh, thereby reducing flooding in that general area. Mm, water table, did yeah. you say? Yeah. I don't, I've never heard that before. What does that mean? The water table, you can think of uh, the, the water underground, where oh. that level of water sits. So in Florida, for example, our water table is fairly close to the surface. Oh, yeah. It's right there. Yeah. Ain't nobody got a basement here. <laughs> so this combination of you know taking a river, for example, and slowing its flow and then kind of spreading it out mm. makes it so any any sudden onset of water would then have more time to be absorbed into the ground before, oh okay rather yeah. than like you're not gonna get like a flash flood right we see this in our own activities in which <laughs> messing with the flow of our rivers and streams has now led to extreme flooding right. in the events of like hurricanes and stuff like that yeah this creates ponds upstream of the dam, and those ponds get larger. There's something interesting, though. It's not like they're in these places forever. So once they leave those homes and dams that they've made, those structures, of course, are relatively flimsy, and they, they will decay over time. Yeah, it's, not... it's still just twigs <laughs> and wood, right? And so without beavers there to, to do the upkeep, they will you know deteriorate eventually. Mm-hmm. So what happens is beavers will move into an area, create dams, you know, flood a good section, turn it into wetlands. My work here is done. <laughs> they might leave or they're poached or they're overhunted, et cetera. Whatever it is, they're, they're gone. Those dams then, you know, break and the water recedes, mm. creating a fairly fertile meadow. Because this results in a lot of silt being built up. Sure. Yeah, really like very saturated soil. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's nice. They leave a little meadow behind. <laughs> That's very sweet. Now, this whole preserved wetlands thing, I hesitated to include it in Ingenuity, um, as it would seem hard to determine if this is a beneficial side effect or... I'm almost certain it is. <laughs> Versus something intentional, right? <laughs> I'm almost certain that it is something that just like happens around them. <laughs> right. <laughs> so earlier I mentioned they, they, they got a stank about them. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so this is because they use scent marking for communication. Okay. 
It makes um, sense if they don't hear if they don't see too good. Right. So they have these things called anal glands and castor glands. Uh, but they use those those scent markings to communicate between different groups of beavers to let them know, like, hey, this is my area. Oh, do they like live in groups? They do. Okay. Uh, I'll talk about that here in a moment. Uh, before that, so one of the things they do with their tail that I think was interesting is that they will slap the water surface to alert other beavers of, to danger. To danger? Yes. Oh, it's like a like an alarm yes. that they set off. It is loud. Is it? And if you're not expecting it, <laughs> and it is at night, and you're in the woods. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to scare you. <laughs> I have to imagine that uh, you say, you start doing those those same mental equations that you do on 4th of July, where you're like, was that fireworks, or do I need to run? <laughs> um, so this is my personal experience with Beaver, actually. Yes, let me hear it, please. Uh, used to do lots of camping as a young teenager in Rhode Island. So the the place we were camping had a, you know, a river and a big pond and... Uh, we liked to frog gig. Frog uh, gig? Yes. Uh, Hunt bullfrogs. Okay. I've never heard it referred to that way. Frog gigging is often how it's referred Not to. Not just frogging? You could make it fun. <laughs> frogging. Uh, so the easiest, or the way we did it, would be at nighttime with a flashlight, because it reflects off their eyes in the water. Oh, it sure does, you'll, doesn't you'll, it? You'll usually find them on the, the shoreline of like big ponds and yeah. bodies of water. Uh, so if you can just imagine a group of us walking <laughs> in the middle of the night in this forest, <laughs> in this pond, and then the sound of what some have described of someone throwing a cinder block into a body of water <laughs> out of nowhere. Now, if it evokes the mental image of a cinder block being thrown into a body of water, that has a very specific connotation. Like in movies, you see when somebody's trying to weigh down a dead body, <laughs> they throw a cinder block into a body of water. So if that is what the, that's conjuring. Well, from what I remember, the thought it conjured for me was that is something very big. You could tell it was a, a body, like a splash of some sort. A but belly flop. <laughs> something big. Yeah. But of course, it's not so much something big, just something with a lot of force and surface area behind it. Ah, uh, sure. Yeah. So that's what they do. So they'll kind of do a combination of a dive and a slap on the surface of the water. Okay. We've all done this in the pool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They do use vocal communications, low groaning sounds. Mm. Yeah. Can I hear it? I didn't didn't look it up. No, I mean like from you. I don't know. (laughs) Coward. (laughs) This was purposeful uh, ignorance. (laughs) So I mentioned they live in groups. So they have some family bonds. They live in colonies up to 12 family members large. Aww. Yeah. Their young are called kits. Ah, <laughs> that's adorable. Right. Kits stay with their parents for two years, helping uh, with taking care of younger kits as they grow older. They do reproduce fairly quickly, being rodents. Being rodents. <laughs> that's one thing. They're so good at that. Yeah. They are not afraid to throw hands. But with their dead little paws. (laughs) Uh, They will stand their ground uh, when cornered on land. Uh, They do this by raising themselves up on their hind legs and will pounce and bite. Oh, pounce. That's a very aggressive... uh... (laughs) Yeah, and they got those teeth. They sure do. (laughs) Fairly strong bite for us behind it. Real chompers on them. Mm -hmm. I would not fight a beaver. No. I would absolutely not. (laughs) I think a beaver could take me down if it really wanted to. So, you know, general advice, not to approach wildlife like that. No, not these. They may be a rodent, (laughs) but... So I'm I'm assuming, you know, this specification of this is how they behave when cornered on land means if they're in or near water, they would opt to instead run because they can move quicker in water. I was going to say, it sounds to me like they can move faster in the water than they would on land. Yeah. Our final category is aesthetics, which describes how they look. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm giving a very generous 7 out of 10. You don't think they're that cute? Not very, no. What is it? What's not doing it for you? Their teeth are orange, first of all. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the scaly tail, it just takes that discomfort and just... Now, this whop. is... <sighs> <laughs> this is something that you also didn't like about my rats. Yep. Which is something that doesn't phase me at all. I really don't. It does, it does not bother me. But from in my experience working at a pet store and selling rats, that was always 
the deal breaker. That was always the breaking point. I would often, so often I would get people that would like be starting to come around on like the concept of a rat being cute. And then the tail would always do them in. It's something about, and they're in the semi-arboreal monkey brain. (laughs) (laughs) That is just mammal scales. Mm. Maybe it's like, Ooh, long slithery thing with scales. Don't touch that thing. That thing. Earlier, you mentioned Nutria. Yeah. So another reason I thought it was strange that we didn't see these things a lot in our area is because we do see a lot of Nutria. Which seem like the same thing. They do. They feel like they they fill a similar you know niche. Sure. So Nutria are introduced. They are from South America uh, and invasive. So they, they cause problems because of eroding lake banks and that kind of thing. Yeah. Digging for roots and stuff. And we don't really have the predators to deal with them. Right. They're big. They're real big. They're smaller than beavers. They're smaller than beavers, but they're big for a rodent. Yeah. But after doing a little research, I think my perception of how many there are in Florida was inflated. Really? Because Jacksonville is one of the hot spots for them. Oh, I didn't know that. I yeah. thought they were just everywhere. Right. We just have it bad. <laughs> <laughs> we're just in the trenches. That's yeah. all. I thought we were all dealing with this. So for us, if we see something where we're like, that could be a beaver, that could be a nutria, it's Probably 99% a nutria. Right. But for other areas which have, you know, more prominent overlap, uh, the best way to tell them apart. uh, So first of all, nutria are smaller. They have a hairless, laterally flattened tail. Mm. But it's not, you know, super wide like a beaver's. It's more like a ribbon, really. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And they have a white muzzle and whiskers, whereas Mm. beavers don't. Beavers don't have whiskers? They don't, it's not white. Oh. Um, the tail should be enough to tell, but the thing is, when they're swimming, you can't see the tail very well unless you're right on top of them. Right? That's true. You really can. Yeah. You think you can? You really can't. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, we had an otter in the pond behind our house mm-hmm. like a year or so ago, and I didn't realize until I was trying to take pictures of it how little of it you can actually yeah. see when they're swimming in the water. To make things more complicated, some parts of the country, you know, could be beaver, could be nutria, and they also have a third, a muskrat. Oh, yeah. I forgot about those. <laughs> yeah. I always forget those exist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you can't really talk about beavers without talking about their conservation. Today, they are of least concern. It's quite the story. But they were very overhunted. Right. Uh, from the late 1700s to the late 1800s. Uh, lots of demand for their fur nationally and internationally. So there's lots of fur hunting going on there to the point where their you know range was decreased. A right. Bit. So they've, they've, you know, we made progress there today. Um, they are sometimes seen as pest animals now. Uh, if you're a tree. <laughs> So, I mean, they, they could become problematic, uh, especially if you have decorative trees on your property that right. they like. Yeah, <laughs> I see that. I've heard of them also chewing on wooden structures that are not trees. Oh, really? Like, I've heard of them chewing on, you know, the sidings of houses yeah. or, like, if you have, like, a surfboard yeah. or something, they'll chew on that. So, you know, we talked about, you know, they only fell relatively small trees. Mm-hmm. But if they're looking to eat bark and cambium of a tree, it doesn't have to be one that they have to fell. So it could be a larger one that they're just going to eat the yeah, bark. Just go to and town. Like, yeah. Just so that's in. another sign of beavers is, you know, a tree at, at the base of which that the bark has been stripped off of. Um, and that, that first layer of wood has also been dug into. So, yeah, they're sometimes seen as pest animals because they can damage trees and other wooden structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a river or a stream on your property, that could be problematic. So here's the thing, you know, just their presence is not enough to want to get rid of them. Right. It's if they're causing problems, that's when you start looking into solutions. But there's there's a lot of room in between nothing and killing them, for example. Right. <laughs> so, you know, you can protect trees by, you know, putting chicken wire basically around the bottom of a tree that you don't that you want to protect. That's true. They're not There's, you know, ways to manage, you know, dams and such to where you can uh, install devices that let enough water through that dam mm. so that it doesn't, you know, threaten whatever it is upstream that you don't want to be flooded. Um, so there's lots of solutions there. Um, mm. The 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 states that have big beaver populations have guidance on living peacefully with beavers, and if you really get to the point where they need to be taken care of, they have guidance on that too. Sure. Call somebody. Yeah. Get a professional in there. <laughs> uh, live alongside your beavers because they're ecosystem engineers. Mm-hmm. What a delightful creature. Yeah. <laughs> I wish we saw them more. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like I mentioned, there's a lot of data out there on them because of how 
how wide their range is and, right. and how their activity affects humans. So, also quite charismatic, I think. Like they're charismatic creatures. I think people like like to learn more about them. That's true. Because they're interesting and cute. Yeah. But they're a bit cryptid in real life. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I suppose because they're nocturnal, you're probably yeah. not going to like come across them. Super often. Sure. I've seen a lot of camera traps, though. I know a lot of times people will set up camera traps outside of like beaver lodges mm-hmm. and stuff and watch their goings on at mm-hmm. night. It's pretty cute. <laughs> you know, when, when a beaver is like scurrying around carrying like a big tree or a, a giant branch, it reminds me of those videos of dogs that yeah. have picked up a stick that's too big and they try to like walk <laughs> through a door frame or something and it gets stuck. <laughs> so it reminds me of apparently the sound of running water like triggers something in them like to, oh my god not on my watch is that flowing water <laughs> this cannot stand <laughs> so, yeah. i'm sure there's lots of other things that i didn't come across or mention okay. but we only got so much time yeah <laughs> thank you darling that was wonderful of course Let's uh, hear a couple of promos from our neighbors on the MaxFun Network, and then we'll get to my animal. Hi, everyone. I'm Ella McLeod. And I'm Alexis B. Preston. And we host a show called Comfort Creatures, the show for every animal lover, be it a creature of scales, six legs, fur, feathers, or fiction. Comfort Creatures is a show for people who prefer their friends to have paws instead of hands. Unless they are raccoon hands, that is okay. That is absolutely okay, yeah. Yes. Every Thursday, we will be talking to guests about their pets, learning about pets in history, art, and even fiction. Plus, we'll discover differences between pet ownership across the pond. It's going to be a hoot on Maximum Fun. Hello, I'm a stuffy dowager countess. Travis? I'm judging everybody's manners. Oh, no. Schmanners isn't judgy. It's about teaching you to be your best self and be a little more confident when you enter social situations that you don't understand and maybe also teach you a little bit about history you didn't know or give you interesting things to talk about at parties. Yeah, like the secret life of Emily Post. Or like why wristwatches are the way that they are. We can talk about table manners from the Victorian era. Sure, or what it's like to attend a Regency Ball. Yeah. Uh, You can find all that and more if you listen to Schmanners on Maximum Fun or wherever your podcasts come from, I guess. Manners, Schmanners. Get it? All right. So what tree-adjacent animal (laughs) do you have? My animal is also inspired by the fact that we put our Christmas tree up this week and are just in the mood for it. Mm-hmm. Mine is the Christmas tree worm, Spirobranchus giganteus. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm hoping for a big one. <laughs> they're actually, they're not big. Man. I'm sorry. <laughs> not they're a Christmas not. tree, not big. Are they a worm? They are a worm. Oh, thank goodness. Yes, fantastic news. <laughs> Wonderful news. They are an annelid. This species was submitted by Alex Lee, who said that he saw them while snorkeling in Biscayne Bay, which is in South Florida. Oh, okay. What? I was assuming some sort of terrestrial worm. No, this is a marine worm. Okay. Yes. In fact, I'm getting my information from Marine Bioconservation Society, uh, in addition to Australian Geographic and a Nova video. Oh. Yeah, I love Nova. And there's a great Nova video about these guys. Let me introduce you to this little guy. As I mentioned, it is a marine worm. Mm. And they're called the Christmas tree worm because the part of the worm that you can see... <laughs> the part of the worm that you can see without taking a chisel to it is um a, these two cone-shaped spiraling structures called crowns. Yeah. Which look like a Christmas tree. It's a little central tube and it is surrounded by a spiral of these feathery bristly tentacles mm. um that like grow wider towards the base, okay. right? So you get this sort of like cone spiral sort of thing. Um, and then the rest of the worm is hiding in a little burrow. So you don't actually see the rest of the worm, but that's the part you do see is these this little pair of little Christmas trees, feathery, brightly colored Christmas trees sticking out of the coral. So that's what you see. I'm sure the rest of this will be very cute and not Eldritch Horror at all. <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's nothing compared to their cousin that you've already talked about on this show. So I don't want to hear it from you, actually. 
Um, this is benign okay. compared to what you have brought from this <laughs> from this particular group of worms. Uh, you asked if they are large. They're not. They're only uh, up to uh, about an inch and a half, which is just under four cent- centimeters. Okay. So no, they're not very big. Uh, you'll find them in tropical coral reefs. So they they actually specifically live on coral, on living coral. Some of them will sometimes burrow into clams instead of coral. So you may find them on a clam. Like a living clam? Yeah. But uh, for the most part, it's coral is kind of where you're going to find them. Uh, they are in the family called Serpulidae. They're a type of polychaete worm. Um, which is a word that may sound familiar to you because we've talked about another polychaete worm on the show before, the bobbit worm. Oh. Yes. Polychaetes are segmented worms. Mm. So their body is is chunked up into these little segments. Their segments have these little hair-like bristles that stick out of each segment of their body. So we saw this with the bobbit worm, right? Like the, the little bits of the body have these little hair-like appendages sticking out mm. of them. So to get into effectiveness for the Christmas tree worm, I'm giving my little guy an 8 out of 10. So to sort of focus on the Christmas tree part of it, the festive part, the feathery bristles that create the spiraling branches of the tree are called radioles. So what these actually are are modified mouth structures. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And they wave them around in the water. And as plankton and microorganisms drift by, they get caught in the radials. Oh, okay. Kind of like a jellyfish tentacle, basically. Like how jellyfish just kind of like dangle their bits out there and then whatever happens to run into them gets like slurped up. But this sounds like it would be for things much smaller than the jellyfish. Very small. Yeah. Very small little guys. Basically when a particle, like a, you know, a little... A microscopic little dude sure. runs into one of these radials. The it's really cool. It like folds up and passes the prey inward towards that like central spire, uh, and then the entire structure is lined with really really teeny tiny hair like structures called cilia. Yeah, and they like kind of all pass the prey item down towards the digestive system. I want to see a video of that. It's not like a little conveyor belt sort of situation. It's like, bzz, like passing, <laughs> passing it along. There are lots of videos online of people like feeding their Christmas tree worms that they have like in their aquarium. Yeah. So there are many videos of this. It's pretty neat to watch. It's not very fast. It's not like exciting. You know, like, it takes them a while. They're kind of slow. Just play it two times speed. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Just bump up the speed. You're fine. But the radials are not just for eating. They're also for respiration. They're kind of like the external gills of an like an axolotl, like gill structures. But surprise, they're also used for a secret third thing. So they're used for eating. They're used for breathing. If you had to guess. Is it another B word? What is the third? No, it's not. Another, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure there's some way you could work a B into it. But uh, if you had to guess, what is the third thing that they use these modified mouth part crown structures for is it communication that would be cool <laughs> but no okay hit it is vision really yes this is wild huh. <laughs> it's also fairly recent research oh. so um according to a paper that i found called here there and everywhere the radiolar eyes of fanworms annelida and sabellidae and that was by michael bach in the journal integrative and comparative biology in july of 2016 that's a very good article title isn't it great <laughs> this was a very like this is a very cool paper. So so there's, this research basically suggests that the radials on the crowns, so the radials being the like feathery tentacles mm-hmm. that are emanating from the, the spiral of the crown, uh, they're lined with photoreceptors. Oh. So tiny, tiny, tiny little cells uh, that can detect the presence or absence of light. Okay. So what this helps them with is to tell if a shadow is passing over them. So if a predator is swimming mm. over them, it's going to cast a shadow. And if they detect a shadow, then they can hide. That makes sense. Yes. So it, it helps them see. Uh, it's really, really neat. Like, very interesting that they have modified their, like, mouth parts in this way. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's covered with eyes. It's a biblically accurate <laughs> Christmas tree worm. <laughs> 
So uh, I mentioned that like that's the part of the worm that you can see. Yep. Uh, but that's only like about a third of its body. Mm. So the rest of its body is this segmented body that is um, what they do is they they find live coral when they're like a larva and they kind of drill into it. And then what they do is they actually excrete calcium carbonate to build a tube around their body oh. that they encase themselves in. It's like a sheath. They make a little sheath for their body. The worm lives its entire life completely sedentary inside of that sheath, inside of that little tube right there. Okay. It actually makes the tube a little bit bigger than its body so that it can retract into it. Oh. Yeah, so it's not like a complete, you know, tight fit. It just like zoops right up into there. And it is a completely sedentary animal. It never moves from its little tube. It's just set there for life, which is kind of like the that Junji Ito story about the Amigara fault. <laughs> this has got to be the third or fourth time we talked about that. <laughs> I think I say this is my hole. It was made for me that many times on this show. <laughs> Someone's going to go back and count. <laughs> this is a Juji Ito fan cast. But so what's also really cool about this is that the worm is building that burrow into live coral specifically. Yeah. So live coral is a sort of colony of living animals, mm -hmm. right? It's not just like one big animal. It's a whole, you know, collective of these tiny little animals. But this means that the coral actually continues to grow around right. the Christmas tree worm. So over time, the coral actually envelops the worm's burrow right. and just swallows it. So it hides the tube. So you can't even see that the Christmas tree worm is there. All you can see is the crowns that stick out. Right. So that's because the coral grows over it and just completely encases it. I'm guessing the sheath is to keep it from closing the hole. Yes. Yeah, to keep it, you know, it gives it some structure around yeah. its body. The sheath also has like a giant spike coming out of the front of it, which I think is pretty cool. Neat. Um, so the, the coral grows over the tube and leaves just an opening. Uh, and then when the Christmas tree worm does slip back up inside of that hole to hide, it can close it. Oh. Yeah. It has something called an operculum, which is actually similar to what snails have that let oh. them close their shell behind them, um, which is very helpful. It's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. They can like seal it up when they when they do zoop up into their tube. Another thing I gave them points for effectiveness for is that they <laughs> this worm can live up to 40 years. Wow. That's so much for a worm. Like average is usually closer to like 10 or 20 years, but they have been documented living up to 40 years in like, you know, good care, basically. Sure. This would be like, imagine that you went to a beach and saw a worm on a rock in 1982. <laughs> and then you went there again today and it's the same worm. That's like, <laughs> to put that in perspective, <laughs> that is wild, right? That same worm. <laughs> it's the exact same worm. Um, <laughs> yeah, just 40 years is just an incredible lifespan for a little guy. Although, I guess it makes sense. We, we see long longevity for sedentary animals. Yeah, they're not expending a ton of energy, right? right? So I guess I suppose it makes sense. And there's not a lot that is uh, physically threatening them, mm -hmm. right? So they're not likely to die super right. often. That... It's a highly defensive lifestyle. There's a word for this in video games. It's called turtling. <laughs> it's really annoying, and I hate it when people do it. <laughs> and by the way, you know, they, they leave these Christmas tree spirally crowns sticking out. But if something comes even a little bit close to them, they blink inside of the tube. Right. So they zoop the whole thing up, and it's like it, it's like it was never there. Are the photoreceptors on the, the ones you were talking about? Are those the only eyes it has? No, it has actual eyes. Okay. But in the least opportune place. They're in the middle. What? Of the two, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like in the sort of crook of the two crowns. Huh. There's a there's eyes, little eye patches there. This huh. was in that paper, actually. Okay. There's photos where, like, you have to see it from below because the problem is that the crowns block the eyes. <laughs> they can't see anything with them because of these big, fluffy Christmas trees they've got directly <laughs> over their eyes. So they can see, like, in front of them and behind them, and that's it. So that's kind of, they kind of had to make up for that by lining the okay. the crowns with eyes. <laughs> Hilarious. Love that for them. 
So uh, to move on to ingenuity for the Christmas tree worm, I think I'm being generous when I say I give it a four out of 10, which is like usually for creatures like this that are like completely sedentary. They're not really doing much of anything. Mm -hmm. I think four out of 10 is pretty nice to give them. The, like I mentioned, they're extremely sensitive to light and movement. Um, so if anything is anywhere near them, they immediately zoop right up into their tube. They stay there for usually one to two minutes, and then they slowly come back out. So they kind of like will come out a little bit, check to like like wait to see if it's okay, and then like slowly come back out. I wonder if they would, I guess, drown if they waited too long. What do you mean by waited too long? Like if they stayed in their hole too long and they're not getting oxygenated water over there. Oh, uh, yeah. I would imagine they, they can't stay in there too long right. because that's what they need or to I guess breathe. suffocate might, might be a better word. Yeah, sure, sure. I see what you mean. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine that would be a limiting factor to how long they could stay in there. Mm-hmm. But uh, so here's the thing about that is that some predators like shrimp or crabs or butterfly, butterfly fish is a big one for them. What they'll do is they just wait. <laughs> so they'll come up on a christmas tree worm the christmas tree worm is like oh no and zoops up into the into the hole and they're they just stay still for like a minute and then when it comes out they grab a bite and swim off <laughs> i sleep yeah they just wait and then when when it comes back out they take a chunk out of it and and peace out are they able to slurp out the whole worm no they can't do that disappoint i don't know of any predators that can do that yeah, I don't think so. I don't think they could. I, at least I'm not going to say no full cloth because it's the ocean. <laughs> I'm sure there's something out there that can do that. But um, I, I didn't come across that happening. Usually it is just things that take little bits off of the mm-hmm. crown. But they grow back. So it's okay. Oh. Yeah, you're all right. You can take a chunk out of it. It's fine. They grow back. Oh. Yeah, it's not oh. that big a deal. <laughs> all right. Pet stores hate this one hack for fish food. For infinite fish food. (laughs) (laughs) But then how do they breathe while that's growing back? I mean, they still have the rest of it. I'm sure if you yanked the whole thing off, they'd die. But just a little bit here and there. It's no big deal. I mentioned earlier that the radials are lined with these little tiny hairs called cilia. The cilia, they wiggle and they pulse rhythmically, not just to move food. They're doing something else that I think is really interesting. Mm. They're actually stimulating the flow of the water over the radials. So they're kind of like pushing and pulling the Mm. water to get it to flow into the crown so that plankton floating by will will be diverted like sucked in basically to help them get more food okay which i think is really really cool that that actually also helps the coral that they live on stimulating water flow over the coral because the coral that they live on are filter feeders too so everybody's having a great time okay actually now that i say that that it does bring me, me to my next ingenuity thing which is that the worm is bringing a lot to the table in its relationship with the coral that it lives on i would hope so Right? Yeah. Come on. (laughs) You are literally drilling a hole. Botfly, take notes. Yes, thank you. Can we get some... Can we get something? We need some symbiosis here. Uh, Thinking back to an episode you did not terribly long ago, uh, there is one particularly voracious predator of corals. Mm It's called the Crown of Thorns starfish. Correct. Um, For more on this starfish, please see the episode that Christian did a couple weeks ago about them. Um, But the gist of it is that they crawl over the live coral to eat it. So the thing about that is that the Christmas tree worm's big bushy stalks push the starfish out of the way and prevent it from being able to comfortably crawl over the coral. Because the, the starfish needs to be completely like flat laying on the coral to do this and they can't do that if the coral is covered in these big bushy christmas tree worms Mm. but also like i mentioned the tube that they build for themselves has big giant spikes growing out of the front so it makes this really really like hostile surface that the starfish can't crawl on comfortably okay yeah so the christmas tree worm is is deterring the starfish from eating the coral and protecting the coral so it's a really interesting way that they're kind of like giving back right. to the coral that they're living on. I did also want to mention they're broadcast spawners. And I just always have to make a mention of that because it's funny to me. <laughs> so like there are individually, each individual is either male or female. Okay. And then to mate, since they're completely sedentary and they have no option for 
approaching each other to exchange genetic information. Uh-huh. They just um, goosh it all out right into the water. Just Good luck. Yeah, there are videos of this. I'm sure. It's not as gross as it sounds. It looks kind of like snot. I mean, they're in similar company. <laughs> yeah, every, Liz, everybody's gooshing out there. <laughs> <laughs> now, are these things found in like big groups of each other or are they... They're, so they're not like seeking each other out, right. but you will find, you'll find them all on like brain coral or something. Like one piece of, one big giant coral colony could have tons of these things okay. growing on it. But they're not like benefiting from being close to each. I mean, I'm sure they are in this like reproductively benefiting from being close to each other, but they're not like seeking each other out. Sure. You know what I mean? They also don't like, they're not hostile towards each other in any way. I call this reproduction method spray and pray. (laughs) (laughs) Helen. (laughs) But it makes sense because, like, when you you can't move to go get to each other, you got to put it out there. Every relationship is a long-distance relationship when you are a sessile animal. (laughs) This is what that song, Someone to Lava, was about. Yeah. Actually, it was exactly about this. Yeah. Um, so finally, aesthetics for the Christmas tree worm. This is a solid 10 out of 10. Really? Slay all day. I'm obsessed. This, they have such like a red carpet Met Gala look to them. I was going to say, you didn't mention it. I don't think you mentioned coloration. Every color. Really? What color do you want them to be? I don't know. That's what color they are. I was imagining like ghostly pale. They can be. <laughs> they can be any color you want. They're cool. that, that Mika song that was like all over TikTok not too long ago. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they come in vibrant, beautiful, gorgeous colors and markings. So, like, you'll see some that will have, like, a color that's, like, a gradient out towards the tips. Ugh! It's beautiful. It's a gorgeous creature. The prettiest worm, I'm going to say. This is the prettiest worm, which is maybe not (laughs) an incredibly high bar to jump over. But. But they're incredible. (laughs) And I will say, I am only scoring the visible part of the worm. I don't know what's going on inside there. <laughs> Man, it's probably a Sarlacc situation. It's probably a Sarlacc situation. <laughs> it's probably kind of nasty up in there, but <laughs> I don't have to see it, is the thing. They've done me the courtesy of hiding the nasty bits. Is this why you talked about trimmers earlier? No, that was because we were already talking about Kevin Bacon. Oh, okay. I don't okay. know how this ties into trimmers at all. Because the first movie is a worm that like yanks people underground. And... Mm, this doesn't do that, though. I know, it's but it's like the, the majority of its body is underground, underground oh, most of the time. Oh, that part, yeah. That part ties into it. But like, I don't have to see that part, so the only part that I can see is very, very pretty. Which is kind of like when they make food just for filming and commercials and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Where, like it looks beautiful from one specific angle, but if you see it from behind, you can see that it's like held together with toothpicks and glue. It's like I'm that. still trying to figure out why we were talking about Kevin Bacon. Because he was the voice of Balto there when it we were is. watching Balto. There, thank you. <laughs> that was a hundred percent of my CPU power there for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> we have, we've diverted all of our resources to Kevin Bacon. <laughs> Computer, <laughs> divert thrusters <laughs> to Kevin Bacon. Um, so that is the Christmas tree worm. Thanks, son. Delightful creature. I was yeah. so happy. I didn't think they were going to be as interesting as they were going in, and I'm really glad I gave them the chance. Very good. Yeah. I'm going to have to look up pictures to see if my mental image lines up oh, at all. I'll show you. Oh, boy. I I would love to get your raw reaction to what these look like. I'm just going to pull up the first page of Google image results so you can see what I'm talking about. Okay. That's way more vibrant than what I was imagining. Aren't they gorgeous? Mm-hmm. I tried to look up diagrams of like what their anatomy looks like under there. And then I was like, I don't need to. <laughs> it's like, we don't know. Well, I was like, I don't care enough. <laughs> I would assume that is something that could hurt me, though, and would not touch it. They're not that big is the thing. Yeah. But I do have, I do operate under the assumption that everything in the ocean is like highly venomous and will immediately kill you. It kind of looks like some sort of anemone. Yes, it does have anemone vibes, which would make me immediately think that thing will hurt me very badly. Nemo taught me many things. Nemo taught me a lot. (laughs) So yeah, it's a Christmas tree worm. Thank you. Yeah, it's only uh, festively themed in purely just in English common name only. Right. But I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> it means that I get to put the word Christmas in the episode title, which is great for SEO. We did it. Love it. 
Um, and I hope that you, dear listener, have enjoyed what you heard here today. We had a lot of fun. If you're new here, welcome. Uh, if you'd like to hang out with us on social media, we're on Facebook, Instagram. We have a Discord server that is just amazing. It's so fun and everybody's really nice. We're on Twitter. If you have an animal that you want us to talk about on the show, please email that to me. My email address is ellen at justthezooofus.com. Leave us a five-star review if you liked what you heard. We really enjoy it when people do that. And I promise we read the reviews and it's it makes us feel very good. Thank you to Max Fun for having us on the network. Uh, if you want to learn more about the network and how you can support our show and keep us keeping on, that is over at MaximumFun.org. Thank you to Louis Zong for our theme music. And that's all for this week. We'll talk to you later. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.